This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for February 15th, 2019. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. With some of the leading Democratic presidential candidates now talking about Medicare for all, we take a look at how the idea for senior health care became federal law. It was a debate that was front and center during FDR's New Deal and became law more than 30 years later as part of LBJ's Great Society. Our guest is Bill Arnone, who spent his life studying the elderly and retirement issues. He is currently the CEO for the National Academy of Social Insurance, which is a Washington, D.C.-based nonpartisan think tank. And it was on July 30, 1965, President Lyndon Johnson, joined by former President Harry S. Truman, signing the landmark bill. It was a generation ago that Harry Truman said, and I quote him, Millions of our citizens do not now have a full measure of opportunity to achieve and to enjoy good health. Millions do not now have protection or security against the economic effects of sickness. And the time has now arrived for action to help them attain that opportunity and to help them get that protection. Well, today, Mr. President and my fellow Americans, we're taking such action 20 years later. And we're doing that under the great leadership of men like John McCormick, our speaker, Carl Albert, our majority leader, and our very able and beloved majority leader of the Senate, Mike Mansfield, and distinguished members of the Ways and Means and Finance Committees of the House and Senate of both parties, Democratic and Republican, because the need for this action is plain, and it's so clear indeed that we marvel not simply at the passage of this bill, But what we marvel at is that it took so many years to pass it. From the Harry Truman Presidential Library in Independence, Missouri, that was July 30th, 1965, President Lyndon Johnson. And Bill Arnone, let's talk about how we reached this point as we discuss the history of Medicare. Well, uh, first of all, thank you for having me. This is a perfect uh, occasion to talk about the history of Medicare. Uh, just to give you a snapshot of what the country's elderly were facing at the time, uh, the poverty rate uh, was about 33%. Remind, remember, this is 30 years after the enactment of Social Security, and the elderly poverty rate was still very high. It had been 60%. Uh, about uh, 50% of older Americans at uh, that point uh, said they could not afford hospital insurance. Uh, 25% of the country as a whole said that. So. You had twice as many older people unable to afford uh, hospital insurance. And about uh, 25% of the elderly said during the course of a year, they went without needed care. So this was a serious uh, economic problem, but also a problem in terms of their overall well-being. Why was it so hard, once you turned 65, to get health insurance? Well, first of all, the health insurance industry itself was not very mature. Um, and very uh, restrictive. I mean, they did not want to insure people who were likely to need health care. Uh, they 
operated on basic principles of insurance is that cherry pick wherever you can. So the elderly were pretty much out of the market in terms of being able to either get it at all or afford it because it was you know, premiums were based on age. Um, so it was a very difficult time uh, for uh, older people in this country. So let's go back a few years before President Johnson signed that legislation in Independence, Missouri, and set up this moment with President John F. Kennedy in your home city of New York City at Madison Square Garden. President Kennedy was the visionary when he came to Medicare. Now, I have to admit, I have a bias here. I worked for his brother, Robert Kennedy, as a United States Senator in New York. And he often would say, you know, my brother didn't get all the credit he should have uh, for Medicare because Lyndon Johnson got it done. But it was President Kennedy's vision. He decided to take a risk uh, by going out on the campaign trail in 1962, talking about it wherever he could. And uh, that was the Madison Square Garden rally was the high point of his uh, stirring up the uh, forces, so to speak, to get this done. This runs just over a minute. Let's listen. In England, the entire cost of medicine for people of all ages, all of it, doctors, the choice of doctors, hospitals, from the time you're born to the time you die, are included in a government program. But what we're talking about is entirely different. And I hope that while he's here, he and Dr. Spock and others who have joined us will come to see what we're trying to do. The fact of the matter is that what we are now talking about doing, most of the countries of Europe did years ago. The British did it 30 years ago. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. And then those who say that this should be left to private efforts. In those hospitals in New Jersey, where the doctors said they wouldn't treat anyone, who paid their hospital bills through Social Security, those hospitals and every other new hospital, the American people, all of us, contribute one half, one or two thirds for every new hospital, the national government. That was in 1962, and Bill Arnone from the National Academy of Social Insurance. What is ironic is that we are having the same debate today. Uh, that is very ironic. Uh, some things never change, but there are a couple of points I, I must make. Uh, President Kennedy pointed out that all of the civilized countries in the world had embarked on this, but we were the only country to do it this way. This way meaning starting with the elderly. No other country started with the elderly. They mostly started with working people. So this was a uniquely American approach. You might say, well, why do we start with them? Um, you know, our country has a history of rugged individualism uh, where we are not very kind toward people who are considered to be failures. But the elderly were considered deserving. In other words, they were in this economic plight through no fault of their own. They had worked. They had been mostly middle-class people who were plunged into poverty by the Great Depression, had lived through it, and had this continuing residue of economic insecurity. So they were kind of, uh, let's start with them because that's the easiest political sell. And President Kennedy got that right away. This was an easier political sell. What type of opposition did President Kennedy and congressional Democrats face with this idea? It was huge because at that time, the uh, House and the Senate uh, were uh, more Republican-dominated. Uh, it wasn't until Johnson's landslide election that Democrats took over the House and the Senate. So President Kennedy had to deal with a uh, really an uncooperative House and Senate, and even the Democrats were the conservative Democrats who controlled all the committees, uh, House Ways and Means Committee in particular. Wilbur Mills, who did not want this, 
was the chair. I was interested Lyndon Johnson did not single out Wilbur Mills. He was a thorn in everyone's side. Uh, but I have to tell you a President Kennedy's story because I love this story. The National Academy of Social Insurance was founded by people like Robert Ball, Bob Myers, and a guy named Wilbur Cohen, who's a very important historical figure. He was the architect of Medicare, and he would go and meet with President Kennedy constantly. And as, as we'll talk about, Medicare ended up with a hospital insurance program and a doctor's insurance program. The hospital insurance program was moving pretty well. The American Medical Association declared war on the attempt to bring doctors into Medicare. So President Kennedy calls Wilbur Cohen and he says, how are we doing? And Wilbur Cohen says, well, we're doing all right with Part A. He goes, Part B, Mr. President, the AMA says if we do Medicare for physicians, it will cause utter chaos in the practice of medicine. And President Kennedy, whose life was spent with doctors, said to Wilbur Cohen, well, what's wrong with that? (laughs) And I thought that just tells you what President Kennedy was all about. You know, it's a disruptive uh, approach, and he was all for it. Here is a familiar voice who was part of the opposition to the Medicare program. This from 1961, before he formally entered politics as a candidate, later governor of California, and then our 40th president, at the time actor Ronald Reagan. One of the traditional methods of imposing statism or socialism on a people has been by way of medicine. It's very easy to disguise a medical program as a humanitarian project. Most people are a little reluctant to oppose anything that suggests medical care for people who possibly can't afford it. Now, the American people, if you put it to them about socialized medicine and gave them a chance to choose, would unhesitatingly vote against it. We had an example of this under the Truman administration. It was proposed that we have a compulsory health insurance program for all people in the United States, and of course, the American people unhesitatingly rejected this. So explain what Ronald Reagan and others were saying to the American people. Well, first of all, talk about irony. What have we heard recently? Socialism is coming to America. That was the uh, boogeyman. Socialized medicine, creeping socialism. And Reagan was a master at delivering that message. You can just hear uh, he knew how to connect with people. That was the fear that, well, this is just the beginning of a government takeover of something vital like health care. And that was always the scare tactic used by all the forces that uh, wanted to continue to make significant money in health care. So explain the basic premise of Medicare, how the legislation came together, how it's funded, and how it's worked over the last 50-plus years. Yes, and I, you can't talk about Medicare without also mentioning Medicaid because they came together. There was a, an analogy used that I thought was very um, appropriate, a three-layered cake. The first layer, Part A, hospital insurance, was a traditional social insurance program. Now, you might say, what do you mean by that? It was to be funded through payroll contributions of workers and employers and put in a trust fund to help finance it over the long term. Just like Social Security, it was based on a social insurance model. Part B, for doctors, was a very different model. It was funded by premiums paid by beneficiaries at the time they began receiving services, so it was not advance funded. And it was subsidized by federal governmental revenues, general revenues, um, subsidized even today to the tune of 75%. So your Part B premiums uh, cover only 25% of the cost of the care. The federal government subsidizes it. That was not a social insurance approach. That was a hybrid approach. Medicaid was the 
welfare approach, by the way, a dirty word in American politics, but it was for the poor. Uh, it was means-tested, and it was limited to the poor. By the way, here we are 50-plus uh, years later. Medicaid has dwarfed Medicare. No one ever thought it would dwarf. Uh, 60 million are on Medicare. 75 million Americans uh, receive Medicaid. And explain the Part D program put in place by President George W. Bush. That was never considered back in the origins of Medicare. That was to pay for prescription drugs. And that program is also funded on the Part B model, premiums and subsidies. So it really is not the pure social insurance model that Part A is. Uh, And Part D um, was very controversial. And when you think about it, uh, a conservative Republican president uh, put it in. And that was considered remarkable. I want to share with you, this is a CBS story on the rising cost of prescriptions and how all of this is impacting that key component of the Medicare program. The CDC estimates the biggest chunk of the nation's $3.3 trillion health care bill is for chronic illness. That accounts for 90% of the total costs. One of those conditions, multiple sclerosis, affects more than 2.3 million people. Without treatment, the neurological disease can cause disability. The latest bill of the month reveals just how costly life-saving drugs can be, Sharice Hickson was bedridden with MS symptoms at one point, unable to work or care for her nine-year-old little boy. After trying two other drugs, a single mother's doctor prescribed an infusion called Ocrevus. Now, it costs $65,000 a year. Medicare and Medicaid paid for nearly all of her previous treatments, so she was very surprised when she was billed more than $3,600 for the first two doses of this new medicine. When I received the bill, (laughs) and it said um, $3,000 pay immediately. And I'm like, uh, where am I supposed to get this from? I'm on disability. And that would be five months of my checks. Several weeks after calling the Cleveland Clinic and and applying rather for financial assistance, Sharice's balance was zeroed out, but she still worries about charges for the treatments two times a year and the high cost of drugs for others with MS. That courtesy of CBS News, it's available on its website, and we're talking with Bill Arnone. He is the chief executive officer of the National Academy of Social Insurance. So explain how all of this is impacting what the government and citizens are paying for Medicare and Medicaid. Well, uh, the costs are uh, continuing to be a huge part of the federal budget. Uh, Even with Medicare, Elderly people over the age of 85 are experiencing huge amounts of income going to health care, despite Medicare Part A, Part B, Part C, by the way, which is a new feature, Part D. In other words, the Medicare program was a great start, but it is by no means a comprehensive solution. There are huge gaps, out-of-pocket payments that are very high. There's no lifetime cap on expenses. There's no annual cap. Um, It was designed for a time when chronic illness was not even discussed. It was designed when a time when drug prices were never considered to be a problem. And it was designed at a time when long-term care was never talked about. The result is the big payer of long-term care now is Medicaid, not Medicare. So the Medicare package um, still has a lot of holes in it that people... um, need to realize it's, it was never perfect. For, it was not perfect from the start. And even though it has been expanded, it still uh, leaves a lot to be desired. We came across this documentary put together by the Kaiser Family Foundation, and it takes us back 90 years ago to where the debate was and how it moved forward. Let's listen, because it, I think, illuminates your point. In 1930, life expectancy for white Americans was 61. 
for African Americans, just 48. Interest in national health insurance, insurance for every American, came and went in Washington. The debate became more serious in 1945, when Harry Truman became the first president to send a proposal to Congress. Harry Truman was very much troubled during World War II when he found that there was no health care. And as a result, young men were coming into the Army with, with, with lack in terms of their health simply because there was no way of providing it. Truman's effort failed, but the seed was planted. In 1960, Congress enacted the Kerr-Mills Bill. It provided federal grants to states for medically indigent seniors, and it passed with the support of Southern conservatives. They thought it would help elderly people in the South. Well, what happened was that uh, three years later in 1963, uh, only 32 states had adopted it. But of those states, five industrial states, I mean, New York, California, Michigan, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania got 90% of the dollars. And Mills was furious. Congress has for Mills is Chairman Wilbur Mills of Arkansas, whose House Ways and Means Committee was the gatekeeper to bolder legislation. Events converged to make that possible. Paying their hospitalization. Americans wanted to honor John Kennedy by enacting programs the slain president had supported. In the 64 elections, Democrats seized control of Congress by a two-to-one margin over Republicans, and the needs of the elderly were escalating. That courtesy of the Kaiser Family Foundation and some familiar voices in that, including Joseph Califano, who served in the Johnson administration, went on to serve as the Secretary of Health and Human Services in the Jimmy Carter administration, and former Congressman John Dingell, who died this past week and was buried in his hometown of Dearborn, Michigan. And he and his father really were at the forefront of the move for some type of universal health care and then Medicare itself, um, tremendous contributions that the Dingle family has made. And another reference to Wilbur Mills. So yes. How, how key was <laughs> The tale he? of two Wilbur's. You had Wilbur Cohen uh, trying to get this done and Wilbur Mills trying to stop it. So Kerr Mills really was Medi- what became Medicaid, and that was his approach. Let's do it for the low-income uh, needy. Uh, but uh, fortunately, the 1964 election uh, diluted his uh, power in many ways, and you know, the handwriting was on the wall, and Lyndon Johnson, being a master of arm-twisting, was able to get it done. Where are there gaps in Medicare coverage? Well, the package itself, uh, it doesn't cover vision care. It doesn't cover dental care. It doesn't cover hearing. Uh, just for, fast forward to your elder years, and there's a package supposed to be for you, and it doesn't cover the three things you need a lot. Um, so it has holes. Uh, the Part D program, uh, there's a lot of out-of-pocket exposure. Uh, cost shifting, cost sharing, rather, is a very big part of, of Part B. Um, so despite Medicare, and it's been a tremendous advance, um, it is really not complete. And that was the idea at the beginning. President Roosevelt talked about Social Security as just a part of the overall answer to economic insecurity. And even when Lyndon Johnson signed Medicare, he realized this was the beginning, but it was by no means complete. And that's what Ronald Reagan was saying. Watch out. This is just the start. Well, it never got beyond that, really, until we had the Affordable Care Act, obviously, and that's uh, where we are today. And, of course, the numbers are growing. This is from CNBC on what we're facing on an almost daily basis as baby boomers retire. 
Each day in the United States, 10,000 baby boomers, like Bob, celebrate their 65th birthday. And on that day, they get a special present from their Uncle Sam, Medicare eligibility. They'll join the roughly 49 million older Americans on Medicare and watch as their healthcare worries are whisked away. Or will they? Fidelity Investments estimates that the average couple retiring today at age 65 will spend a whopping $280,000 to cover health care and medical costs for the rest of their lives. That courtesy of CNBC and uh, Bill Arnone, as you listen to those numbers, what's your reaction? Uh, something has to give. I mean, uh, we can't continue like this. Uh, bankruptcies due to medical expenses are still very high. Um, uh, we're just... Uh, uh, screaming for an answer, and as of now, everything we've tried has not done the complete job. So here we are today talking about Medicare for All as um, a way to get universal coverage a reality in this country. Which is one of the other reasons we wanted you to stop by our C-SPAN studios, not only for some historical background on Medicare and Medicaid, but this debate of Medicare for All. What would that look like and what would it mean for the program? Well, first of all, I want to make it clear the National Academy of Social Insurance does not take a position. We don't lobby. We don't have a case. We analyze. We assess. Um, the uh, question of Medicare for all, I think, has been uh, poorly framed. Uh, those who propose it are not saying, let's take Medicare as it is and make it available with one fell swoop to everyone. What they're saying is, let's improve the Medicare package to cover some of the things I just mentioned that are not covered, and let's gradually, uh, in an incremental approach, end up covering everybody, maybe starting with people who are, say, 55 to 65. The reality is it's, you're not going to flip a switch and turn the entire health care system over to single payer overnight, but it's a directional change. And the whole history of Medicare was an incremental history. Um, even how it was cobbled together. So um, the question is, um, in the 2020 presidential election, uh, will this be a front-burner issue, and how will the American people decide if it becomes a front-burner issue? Fascinating debate. Medicare, by the way, was not as controversial as you might have thought. There wasn't a big uproar as it was being debated. It was pretty much taken for granted that this was going to happen. Uh, today's a very different atmosphere. It'll be a very uh, uh, strenuous and a strident debate. And of course, the good news is Americans are living longer, a lot longer, and yet that also puts a huge strain on the system. Well, the other issue is the Medicare age itself, uh, set in 1965 at 65 and never revisited. And how many other things in life have lasted that long without being revisited? So it's time. So we are forming a study panel at the Academy of the top experts in Medicare to look at the Medicare eligibility age. What are the arguments for keeping it at 65? What are the arguments for increasing it, and if so, to what age? And what are the arguments for lowering it, and if so, to what age, including age zero, which would mean Medicare for all? We'll be launching that uh, next month, and it'll, be, it'll operate over about a one-year period. It'll issue a report just in time for the national conversation that we believe we must have as a country on health care in general and Medicare in particular. You are the chief executive officer of the National Academy of Social Insurance. What is it? We're a think tank of a 1,000 of the country's top experts in four key areas. When you hear social insurance, most people go, what is that? I mean, young people think it's having a party to go to on a Friday night. Uh, it really is four core programs. Social Security, which is the crown jewel of social insurance in our country. Uh, Medicare, which we've just talked about. 
unemployment insurance, and workers' compensation. So we have experts in one or more of those four areas. We do issue briefs. Um, we do uh, study panels. Uh, we're trying to get more involved in social media. We just had our annual conference on millennials and social insurance. Um, that's a generation, 80 million, who today don't know why we have these programs and view them as irrelevant to them. I've heard so many young people say, Social Security is great for mom and dad. Medicare was great for grandma and grandpa. They're not for me. And if that thinking prevails, the programs are at risk. To give our listeners uh, some flavor of what it was like in the 1960s, for those who remember F Troop, this is uh, actor Forrest Tucker promoting Medicare in a government-sponsored PSA. This is Forrest Tucker with a message for you about the Social Security You've probably heard about the many changes Congress recently made in the Social Security law, especially the new health insurance program for older people, which starts in July 1966. Now, I know that many of you have questions about these changes because they affect just about everyone, whether they're now getting Social Security benefits or not. Even if you're not yet 65, you'll want to learn of the added protection that you'll have under Social Security and how much it will cost. Now, naturally, we don't have enough time in one minute to give you all the information, but your Social Security office has free leaflets which describe in detail all the recent changes. Write or phone for a copy of leaflet number one, Social Security Amendments of 1965, or leaflet number two, Health Insurance for the Aged. You do that. I like that. You do that, <laughs> or else. <laughs> Actor Forrest uh, Tucker. This was a concentrated effort by the federal government to promote this. Very much so. Uh, the idea was we want a program that gets used. We spent a lot of time developing it. We want it to be used. Uh, but um, another Wilbur Cohen story, I don't know if you got Wilbur, um, when he turned 65, uh, he uh, was on Medicare, and he got his first, what was called at the time, an explanation of benefits, EOB, and he couldn't understand it. He says, here I am, the godfather of Medicare. What have I done? It was so complicated. And that was way back when. Today, it's even more complicated. You've got uh, diagnostic uh, uh, rated groups for hospital coding, hundreds of thousands of codes. Doctors have codes. It's become a very, very complex program. Um, and uh, you know, people talk about, could we streamline it? Could we make it less of a burden? But uh, when you talk to, to doctors in particular and you ask them, what do you think of Medicare, their answer usually is, well, compared to what? <laughs> compared to private health insurance, it's actually not as burdensome to, the, to them or compared to Medicaid. So, uh, again, no, there's no perfect answer here. At least we haven't developed it yet. But Medicare has been a clear advance in many, many ways and a great source of income to hospitals, doctors. It funds uh, graduate school uh, programs, which we don't give enough credit for. It was very key in the integration of uh, health systems uh, in the South. Um, so it's had a tremendous ripple effect. Um, but uh, again, we have to be honest with ourselves. It is not a complete solution. So based on that, what advice do you give those who are approaching age 65 or those on Medicare today? Well, when you're approaching it, there's a tough decision you have to make because the way it's structured is Part A, you get automatically because you've been paying for it your whole working life. Part B is voluntary. So theoretically, you can say, I don't want Part B. Now, there are disincentives. There are penalties. The longer you wait, unless you're employed, the longer you wait, the higher the premium. So over 95% of people who are eligible 
for Part B, take it at 65. Their big choice, though, is, well, now there are two parts. There's Part B, traditional, and there's now something called Part C, Medicare Advantage. And that's the most common question I get. Which of the two should I take? And my answer, a bit glibly, is if you're healthy, take Part C. If you're not, take Part B. <laughs> Part C is meant to really be have more preventive services. At, in some states, it covers gyms, uh, whereas Medicare Part B does not. But um, when you most need health care, Part B provides a stronger benefit. And you can go, you can switch, but it's a tough first decision that people say. Part D is a whole different story. It's a much more complicated decision. You've got to look at the drugs you take. You've got to let them know which drugs you take. They have to be on a formulary. And your premium is based on the drugs that you take. So uh, that uh, adds another layer of complication. I have seen people try to deal with this, and it's not easy. Uh, And there's not a lot of help. Uh, but I have to go back to uh, 1967. I'm working in Robert Kennedy's office, and I thought it was very ironic because of uh, the role of his brother. And I was a constituent case aide, um, almost like an intern. And um, I would handle phone calls. I would get calls from elderly New Yorkers. My doctor will not take Medicare because it was not required that doctors accept it. And I would call doctors and say, this is William Arnone. I'm calling on behalf of Senator Robert F. Kennedy. Mrs. Jones says, you're not taking Medicare. And the doctor would go, you mean Robert Kennedy cares about Mrs. Jones? And I said, yes. Now what are you going to do about it? And invariably, I'd get a phone call two days later from Mrs. Jones. Thank God for Mr. Kennedy. My doctor's taking Medicare. So I got to see it like firsthand in terms of its implementation and the resistance to it at the uh, doctor level. Well, before we let you go, I have to ask you about the new Netflix series on Robert F. Kennedy because you're part of it. Here's an excerpt. He had learned you didn't do things that you weren't going to win. But the new politics said you do the cause, whether you win or not. There is a new generation going to take over here in the United States, and this country is going to move ahead. It was stressed in our family that because we had these tremendous advantages, we had a responsibility. Somebody outside said, are you going to observe your whole six years? I don't know where I'd go. Frankly, I don't need the money, and I don't need the office space. I'd like to just be a good United States senator. I'd like to serve. We face a major, major crisis in the Mississippi Delta. I asked him to go and see. Nobody was going to believe people were starving in America. It was clearly he'd gone through a transformation. Robert Kennedy went home so upset about it. He banged his fist on the table and he pointed at every one of his children. You have to do something about this. From the Netflix series on Robert F. Kennedy and Bill Arnone, you knew him. Uh, I knew him. I, uh, he was my role model. Uh, I think of him every day. He was fierce, uh, passionate. And uh, when I would uh, report on these encounters with elderly New Yorkers in Medicare. I always get a little scrolling from, good job, but we need a solution. We need, these are one-off interventions. We need systemic legislative solutions. And that was what it was all about, uh, translating all of these into uh, big changes. Uh, but he was fierce. He once went to, I'll never forget, he was uh, speaking to a group of medical students about health insurance being universal. And one of these young uh, medical students got up and said, oh, Senator, it's easy for you to talk about it. Who's going to pay for this? And Robert Kennedy said, you are. <laughs> now, who today, name a politician today who would tell someone what they don't want to hear and he's trying to get votes. But that was what he would do. He was uh, frank, uh, brutally honest, and uh, he, he suffered with people. He understood vulnerability in a way that was authentic and you know, changed my life.
So what do you think he would view the debate that we're now in with regard to Medicare and what we'll see in 2020 presidential politics? Well, uh, you know, I'm always a little reluctant to, you know, answer a question like that. You, don't, you just don't know. My sense is he would be appalled that it's taken this long. I really think he would have said, my gosh, we still haven't solved this healthcare." He would view it as a right. I don't think he would view it as a product to be uh, consumed in a marketplace. He'd have a whole different framework. And he would, um, I think, be uh, at the forefront of uh, having a, a, a real comprehensive solution. And finally, it is pretty clear that this is your passion. Why? I've experienced it. Uh, you know, I started out in life after my working for Robert Kennedy. I ran a senior citizen center in the Bronx. And I saw uh, people who had been middle class trying to live on Social Security. And it wasn't working. And I just said, we, we've got to do better. Uh, they, you get to this point in life, you're a survivor. Um, you should have dignity. And to me, that's uh, what we all aspire to, uh, is dignity at the stage in life we all hope to get to. I mean, think of the alternative, right? So it's something that is in my bones, and uh, the Academy is a great platform for us to try to move the needle uh, in a very, very positive way. And there is a lot of information on your website at nasi.org, the National Academy of Social Insurance. And our guest, William Arnone, the chief executive officer, a New York native, if you can't tell from the the accent. <laughs> I hope you don't go as far as say, and a Bronx native, no less. <laughs> and a Dodgers fan. A Dodger fanatic. Go Dodgers. This is our year. We really appreciate you stopping by our C-SPAN Radio Thank studios. you very much. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app, online anytime at cspan.org, or wherever you download your favorite podcast. We thank you for listening.